Okay, good evening. Uh, Acts chapter 2, Bible study. Uh, let's begin in a word of prayer. Lord God, we just give you thanks and praise, honor and glory. We thank you for this time, Lord, bringing us together. Those that are here, Lord, in the sanctuary, Lord, those that might be hearing uh, via podcast, Lord, we just thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the instructor, you're the teacher, that you impart uh, what is needed to each of us uh, for application uh, within the body of Christ and uh, individually, what it means to us. So, Lord, we just thank you for those that are here and those that couldn't. Lord, we know that uh, you're with us no matter where we're at and what we're doing. And we just give you praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, part two of Acts, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. And as I told you last week, this is the beginning of the church age. So, when you look at when did the church begin... Uh, it's right here in Acts chapter 2. This is when the church begins. Uh, before this, you, you have preparation. You have Jesus' ministry. The church is not here yet. He has to go on the cross, resurrected, and ascend to heaven. Uh, and then the gift of the Holy Spirit comes, which we're going to talk about today. And that's what marks the beginning of the church. And last week we talked about Acts 1.8, that when you receive the promise, the gift of the Holy Spirit, it's to enable us to do ministry. It's to enable us to be the church and do what the church is called to do, which is, uh, number one, preach the gospel. So, uh, Acts chapter 2, I'll read verses 1 to 8. It said, and when the day of Pentecost had come, now remember Jesus told him when he ascended, he said, stay together and wait uh, for the promise uh, that you've heard is coming. So they stayed together and it was the day of Pentecost. And again, Pentecost means 50 and Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. And it's a harvest feast. It's a, uh, uh, it's, it's the middle of the uh, harvest season. And it's where you would thank God for the harvest. Now, I think it's very interesting that the church uh, begins on the Feast of Pentecost, which is a harvest feast, and it's also known as the in-gathering. And so what is the church supposed to be about? It's supposed to be about the harvest, the in-gathering of souls. So, again, chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were all sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered, because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, Why are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language, to which we were Born, And then it goes on to explain the different uh, people groups that were there. Now, 
Going back to verse 1, you said it was the day of Pentecost. They were all together. Uh, no churches were established yet. They were still in the temple. They were still celebrating as, as normal Jews would. And then it said it came from heaven. Again, the identification, where does the gift come from? It comes from heaven because Jesus said, it's better that I go. He's seated in heaven and the gift comes from heaven, right? So it comes from heaven. And it says a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house. You know, they're trying to describe what they heard. Uh, and now think about this. That Remember I tell you, when God shows up, and this is the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, God, when God shows up, it's contrary to nature. So it's, it's, he's going to show up in a way that cannot be duplicated. And so there was a violent rushing wind and it filled the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves and rested on each one of them. That's why sometimes this is known as the baptism of fire. But notice it says like fire. They're trying to describe something. Uh, uh, and the best way they could say it was kind of like tongues of fire rested on each person. Uh, but they're clear that it was of, uh, of this rushing wind from heaven and these, these, these tongues of, of uh, something like fire came down and rested on each one of them. And then it says, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, remember, one chapter 1, verse 8, When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power to be my witnesses. And, you know, and so this power, so this ability to do something. Now, this speaking in tongues is a direct result of the Holy Spirit coming down upon them. And uh, it says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, notice, it's not a coding they are filled with the Holy Spirit. So the idea here is that God is now on the inside. In the Old Testament, you have the Holy Spirit was just on select individuals for a select purpose. God's Spirit was not poured out on all believers. Here what you have is now God's Spirit being poured out on all believers. And we'll get into that a little bit more. But the manifestation here contrary to nature they begin to speak with other with other tongues in other words other languages as the spirit was giving them utterance so it makes it real clear they weren't doing this on their own uh the spirit was giving them utterance and we'll go into tongues in a second i just want to finish this back part because it says now there were jews living in jerusalem devout men from every nation under Heaven. So now the Jews from all around were there celebrating the feast, who spoke in different languages. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered, because they were each hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, Why are not all of these who are speaking, are, the, are they not all the Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? So in other words, this tongue, the tongues that they were speaking, the language that they were speaking, was another known language that the speaker did not know, 
but suddenly they were now speaking it, and people were now recognizing it as a language uh, from their own country. You know, this is something you can't duplicate uh, or replicate. This is a move of God. And so, right there, it brings up this issue of tongues. And so I, I want to kind of address tongues right here. That sometimes tongues gets misconstrued or misunderstood and or misused. Uh, notice, this is to show that the Holy Spirit is now coming down upon uh, them and it's a sign of something. Later on, we're, we're going to read... Uh, in Acts, where the same thing happens to the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit comes upon the Gentiles, and they do the same thing. They speak in other tongues, the same way here. But it's the initial outpouring. Okay, There's nowhere in here that says that this is now going to be their way of life. This is what they're going to be doing from now on. But think about it. If you have all these people together, and they're all from different countries, and then all of a sudden they recognize these people uh, speaking in another language uh, and, and it's recognizable to them, it's going to make you stop and say, whoa, wait a minute, what's going on here? So, to explain tongues biblically uh, in the Bible, uh, there's three different types of tongues or languages that uh, is inspired by the Holy Spirit that Scripture talks about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 2, it talks about a spiritual language that is to God. It is something that you don't speak it out for someone else. It's a language that is directly to God. And it says your spirit speaks mysteries, but it is to God. There's nowhere where scripture says that this is the norm. It's given in the list in chapter 14 of of, of of, uh, of Corinthians, where it's talking about different spiritual gifts. Okay? And then, Paul is also addressing uh, some things that are going on in the church in that, in that chapter. And the second manifestation that he talks about, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 and 27, there would be, in a church setting, someone would get up and speak in a tongue but there would be someone else to interpret it. So in other words, somebody was going to get up and they were going to speak uh, in, a, in, another, in another language. Uh, sometimes people say this is a, an unknown language, uh, but the usage of the word tongues here is the same that it is in Acts. Uh, so very well, it could be someone gets up and now speaks in another language, and there was somebody that understands that language and now gives the interpretation. But it also says, if if there is no interpreter, that person should just remain silent and sit down. And it should be done no more than two or three at the most in a church setting. This is also the same passage where Paul says, let all things be done decently and in order. So those are two manifestations there of, of tongues. And then the third one is what we're talking about here, Acts chapter 2, verse 6, where someone is speaking in tongues clearly a recognizable language uh, that someone else understands. And so this gets misused in, 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 uh, uh, badly by a lot of fringe groups in Christianity. 
that want to somehow use the idea that the power of God is now somewhat selective and the power of God is now on certain individuals and it's not on others and it's it's just not scriptural. So if you have any thoughts or questions about that, you know, you can email me and I can go into it more. But for those who are here in the audience, uh, do you have any questions on that? Kind of straightforward. So it is three different types of tongues, but it's if if something is going to be done, if God is going to do something, he doesn't do something to show off. He does it as part of either a demonstration of his power or his appearance or he is trying to uh, uh, show someone something about himself. And so, again, this thing of, of here in Acts chapter 2, you know, a recognizable language. Somebody is there interpreting. And it's just like if, if my family knows, I don't know, I don't, I don't know, I can't speak Spanish. And, and, and Diego speaks per- perfect Spanish. And all of a sudden I got up and I'm speaking perfect Spanish. He's going to be blown away because he knows I can just read off the menu. I don't know. Spanish like that, or if uh, someone else here, or some of our members from uh, the Philippines, all of a sudden I start praising God in a in a in a language, in a, one of the dialects of the Philippines, and, and somebody, one of the Filipinos, said, "Where did you learn that?" And I'm like, "I don't know," you know. And so the question is, are these things still evident today? Well. You have to understand how were they given and why were they given. Show a manifestation that God was 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 doing something. It's just like, do we go out and find the burning bush that Moses spoke to? No, God did it one time to show he appeared and, and had its 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 thing there. Uh, the parting of the Red Sea is God going around and now parting parting the sea all over the place. No, he did that to show something and to demonstrate something and and to save them. So it's all it's all part of that. So you you, you can go into more detail in that, but there are some groups in Christianity or even not really Christianity, they're fringe groups that they want to use tongues as a particular sign or it's something that you have to have. And there is nothing in scripture that says you have to have this particular gift, but this is just a manifestation of something happening. Okay, we good on that. But again, if you're listening to this and you want more clarification or more scripture on it, just email me or uh, text me or something. I can get you more information on that. So you have these people, they're all together and all of a sudden they start speaking in other tongues and they're marveling at this, and uh, you know, at first they think that these uh, people are drunk or something. And then Peter gets up in verse fourteen, and he delivers the first sermon to the church. So we talked about this in uh, on Sunday service a few weeks ago, where I kind of preached this passage. So now let's teach this passage a little bit different the way you approach it. So in verse fourteen. Peter is now there to give understanding to what has just happened. And now this is God. God is not going to give people something uh, and, and not have understanding on it. And, and Paul even says that in reference to tongues in chapter 14. He says, you know, let what you do be edifying for the church. So in other words, so that all people can participate in it. So Peter gets up. 
Verse 14, he says, But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, the other apostles, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day, which is 9 a.m. in the morning. He says, verse 16, But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, says God, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind or all humankind, everyone. Okay. And so he, he right there, he says, he makes the connection with Joel. So Joel says, there's going to come a time when God's spirit is going to be poured out on all of us, you know, and here we're talking about believers. So he makes this connection. He says, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. What that means is not that they're going to say something that you don't know. They're going to be quoting scripture. They are going to be uh, in tune with scripture. Because remember, a prophetic utterance is, this is what God has said, or thus saith the Lord. And when the prophets in the in old came, uh, they came and they basically said, if you do not follow what God has said, if you do not do what scripture has, has, has said, or what you said you were going to do based on God's word, this is what's going to happen to you. So they don't come up with something new, they just quote scripture. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, now notice, both men and women, back in the Old Testament time, men and women did not Worship together. This is, this is something new. They, they separated. Women would pray on one, on one part and the men would pray on another part. Uh, they would be taught separately. And here he's talking about, you know, the Spirit's going to be out, you know, even on the bond slaves. The bond slaves are those that are working for, uh, the owner of the property. Both men and women. I will, in those days, pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. In other words, speak of, of God's wonders. And I will grant wonders in the sky and signs on the earth. Blood, smoke, fire, vapor, and smoke shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Part of this is always referenced as... uh uh, what's happening now, and then the back half of it is referenced what happens at the end of the age during the, you know, uh, book of Revelation period, because the language there is pretty much the same. But the key here is 21, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, Peter's first sermon, he makes a connection with what's going on, and his outcome is salvation. He says God is doing something, and it's related to what God said was coming, and then he says, you know, you call upon the name of the Lord, and you shall be saved. This is the first sermon to the church. Uh, um, So the Holy Spirit is poured out on all, and what's interesting now, if you were to diagram this that um, if you have God working in history from let there be light in Genesis and the 
you know, the, the early fathers and what he was doing with Moses and all that stuff. Uh, you know, he's the Holy Spirit comes down on just a few select individuals uh, to do something. But then once Jesus comes, well, actually before the cross, now God comes down to the earth. Emmanuel, God is now with us on earth. Jesus goes on the cross and then he goes back to the Father in heaven. But he said, I won't leave you as orphans. I will send the gift of the Holy Spirit. And now God comes back down form of the Holy Spirit. And now this is the way God is revealing himself to us via the Holy Spirit who uh, John refers to as our help, our comfort, our guide, our teacher. And uh, 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 as Luke says in, in Acts, you know, the Holy Spirit now empowers us to do what? The ingathering, to be the church, to preach the gospel, uh, uh, to, to get people saved so that they will call upon the name of the Lord. We live in such a marvelous time that God is with us via the Holy Spirit. Because remember, we have a triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all there. So when the Holy Spirit comes, you have fullness of, of the Son, and you have the fullness of the Father along with the Holy Spirit. You don't have one-third of God. You have the fullness of God. Same thing with Jesus on the cross. You don't have... Uh, 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 one-third of, of God, you have Father, Son, Holy Spirit there, you know. Let there be light. Nothing was created that wasn't, hadn't been created, was not created through whom Jesus Christ, he was in the beginning, and it talks about it in the beginning, the Spirit of God was hovering, and uh, out of that, all that happened. So, God is now with us, Emmanuel, God is still with us in the church age. Thoughts, questions? Good? Okay. Uh, go to Acts 20, chapter 2, verse 22. Continue here. Peter now says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus and Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves no. In other words, Jesus came according to Scripture. He came with signs, wonders. He came with everything that you could identify him with a work of God, a move of God. Verse 23. This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. And that's a doctrine statement there. Uh, Jesus cannot be held by the power of death any more than God can be held by the power of death because Jesus is God. But for the believer, and Paul makes it more clear in Romans that if Christ is in us, 
He lives in us, we live in him. And so in other words, that same power that raised him from the dead that overcame death is now in us. And so it it cannot hold us either. So we have that in us now. And that's, that's the importance of the Holy Spirit coming because it's the Holy Spirit that indwells us, but it cannot indwell us until the work on the cross. Once the work on the cross is done, now the Spirit can come and indwell us. It couldn't indwell over here because it wasn't finished yet. The work of God revealing Messiah and salvation through Jesus Christ. And then once that's accomplished, then on believers, the Holy Spirit is there to fill us, to indwell us, but also uh, uh, to transform us uh, from death into life. Because we were destined for death, now we are destined for life in Christ. So he is, is an indictment of the Jews there in Jerusalem, but then there the proclamation of Jesus Christ as Messiah, who death could not hold. Uh, and he goes on and he, he says a few more things there in the sermon. What I want to look at is verse 37 to 41. Actually, Start in verse 36. He says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Okay? Messiah and Lord. You know, he's over all. All things. He says, House of Israel, you that had the Old Testament, you that have the Scriptures, you that have Father Abraham and Moses and the law and the priesthood and the kingship, And all of that, let you know it's now all through uh, Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord shall call to himself. Now, this is the immediate response to Peter's sermon they were convicted by who? They, they, they said, what shall we do? The one who convicts, the one who opens the eyes, is the Holy Spirit. See, we're just the messengers. It's the Holy Spirit that opens the eyes of the believer. It's the Holy Spirit uh, that now changes the heart of the believer. We just deliver the message uh, Verse 37, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. You know, when we talk about in uh, um, our evangelism class, which is on Thursdays live on Facebook, 7 to 8 o'clock, or you can catch it, uh, uh, repeat uh, repeat telecasts on YouTube. Um, what we talk about is when you're evangelizing, you're using the word of God and what you're really speaking to is not the brain or the intellect, but you're speaking to a person's heart because that's where a person is convicted. That's where change takes place. It takes place in the heart. And so this is what happens. See, they were pierced in the heart. And that's what happens when when we realize that we're sinners and that sin is separated from God. We're pierced in the heart. 
You know, it's not the brain because the brain will come up with all kinds of reasons and rationale why why we don't have to go through this process or this or that. You have to bypass that and go to the heart. And this is what the Holy Spirit does, goes to the heart. Uh, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And here's what we should do. Repent. So in other words, he just did what? He said, you're guilty of crucifying Jesus Christ because you did not believe. So what must we do? You must repent from that. In other words, you need to turn from that. Uh, and that's what repentance means. It turns, turn from your sins and let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And remember, I tell you, baptism means change. So we now go through this change uh, uh, when we confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Because what happens? We're changed from death to life. Uh, and then what happens upon our confession of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Then it says, For the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit isn't for those that don't confess. The gift of the Holy Spirit is there for those that do confess, because Acts one eight. It's for us to be able to do ministry. And the only ones that are going to be doing ministry are the ones that are saved. And so that's what the gift of the Holy Spirit is for. And this is what causes problems sometimes is we don't fully understand that we have Christ on the inside of us and people that don't know God don't have that. And so sometimes, you know, you can't relate or you try to relate on certain terms and you really can't because you're filled with God and they're filled with sin. They're filled with the enemy. They're filled with, 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 with Satan. And so you, we have to under, understand that particular process. And then he makes it clear, verse 39. He says, this promise is for you. In other words, he says, it's for you today and your children and for all who are far off as many as the Lord shall call to himself. So in other words, we are now in the age of the ingathering of the uh, harvest of the church. And then we know from our study in, in, in Revelation and in uh, Daniel and other places is that Jesus is going to come back. And when he does, he's going to do what? Judge the living and the dead. And at that point, the harvest age is done. So as many as he shall call to himself... It has an end point. That's why when we talk about evangelism, we talk about there has to be a sense of urgency. Because literally Jesus could come tomorrow. He could come next week, next month, next year, whenever it is. But there has to be a sense of urgency because that day is going to come. Just as surely as this day came, the cross. Just as surely as the giving of the Holy Spirit came. Just as surely as you and I were called and, uh, and others and what God has been doing throughout our history. So the Holy Spirit convicts, we repent, we're changed through our confession of Jesus Christ, we receive uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 41, it says, So then those who had received his word, in other words, those who heard it, those who received, those who repented, those who confessed, those who were changed, baptized, those who received the Holy Spirit, 
uh, were added that day about 3,000 souls. So in other words, 3,000 people were convicted that day. 3,000 people came to the Lord that day. So the church age started with the apostles in the 120 that were there in the upper room. And what was added to them was 3,000 souls. And then later on we read, and we're going to get to it in a second, God kept adding to that number. But notice how the church starts with power. But the power doesn't enable us to be... Uh, uh, for us to now, now, now excel, it, it, it's something. It's there for us to in, excel in preaching the gospel, in doing ministry, uh, in being deacons and elders and administrators and pastors and teachers and evangelists and all the things that are required uh, in the in the in the church. And so, what the church has, and this is what separates Christianity from any other religion or deity type thing is that God is present in us. Living God is present. That's why the church is a living organism. It's not a building. It's a living organism that lives on the inside of us. It's alive. It's alive today and forever more. So then the back part of this now gives us a picture, a glimpse of what was the first church like? What did they do? Because this should be a marker. It should be a reference point for the church today. Because there's nowhere in scripture does it say what happened then and that power and what was done now stops. Scripture doesn't say that. We're continually doing this because as many as the Lord shall call to himself. So this this is going to be going on. So this idea of signs and wonders and power of God moving in a miraculous way is part of the signs that should accompany the church. But this is what the early church, the practice of the early church was. Verse 42. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Why? Because when you're saved, you must be discipled. Right? We must be discipled. And this is the problem. If someone were to get saved and not be discipled, the danger is they wander off. They never they never take the next step. So they were continually, not just one once and one and done, they were continually doing this, continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. So in other words, now these 3,000 people, 3,100 people, whatever it, it was in the beginning, were now getting to know each other on a whole different level. They were no longer competing with each other. They were now all in the same boat, in a sense. They were now all members of the kingdom of God. To fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. In other words, the breaking of bread, and I've said this to you before, Jewish custom, if you didn't like someone, you wouldn't eat with them. You just didn't, wouldn't do it. And I think most of us today could say that. You'd say, you know, well, we're going to go, uh, we're going to go over so-and-so's house and we're going to have, uh, dinner. And if you don't like that person, what's the first thing that comes out of your mouth is, I ain't going over there. Why would I go over there? I don't even like them. I don't want to go over there. There's not going to be any, you know, and so 
we don't do that, right? And so, but here, the idea is that they're going to have all things in common. And so whatever disagreements they had before, and to kind of tie this into Sunday's sermon last week, that, you know, in unity with God, all of us in, in, in one with God and one with one another, that means barriers that separated us before, like racism and all these other things, fall. Because no, we're, we're now one people with one God. Our culture doesn't change, but those things that the world used to define us and separate us are no longer there in the church. See, that's why when it comes to racism and all those other things, the church should be leading the charge and doing it in such a way that people are coming to Christ, not just picketing and doing whatever. So breaking the bread into prayer. 43. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Yeah, because this was new. This was fresh. This was, this was vibrant. You know, and this is what church should be. Uh, again, we talk about it in evangelism class. That what does it feel like when you go out and you evangelize? You come back with a sense of awe. You come back with this feeling of you've really done something. You've accomplished something, uh, what God is doing. And you were part of that. And it leaves you with this sense of awe. It leaves you with a, a, a peace and a, and a happiness that you've now, now accomplished something. You're now part of what God is doing. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. It doesn't say anywhere in scripture that wonders and signs stop. Now, wonders and signs is up for interpretation. What are wonders and signs? Wonders and signs are those when God does something that leaves you in awe. Wonders and signs and wonders, like I, I told you, you know, when somebody's in the hospital and they're they're flatlined, they say there's no activity in their brain, and you go there and you pray, and three weeks later they walk out of that hospital. That's signs and wonders. That leaves you in awe of what God is doing. Uh, when someone who's never walked with God uh, and persecuted the church, or someone has just been evil, and then all of a sudden one day they confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and their life changes dramatically. That's signs and wonders. That's awe. You know, sometimes we read signs and wonders and we think, you know, it's going to be these magic tricks or this, this, this kind of stuff, you know, supernatural. It can be, but don't dismiss the everyday signs and wonders like those things when you're stopped at a, at a stoplight and you, the light says go and something inside inside you says stop and you stop and then a car comes right in front of you and you realize if you would have went you you would have been smashed those are signs and wonders they leave you in awe of what God is doing. So it's, it's those kind of things. Signs and wonders were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed, became believers, were together and had all things in common. So what is the church supposed to do? They're supposed to gather together. Right? Paul even says that. Uh, let's not forsake the gathering of, of, the, of the church together. All who believed were together and had all things in common. Because now, what becomes our common denominator? What do we have in common? Christ. Who are we living for? Christ. What's, what now motivates us? 
Christ, who guides us, the Holy Spirit, who is our Father, God, where do we enter, the kingdom. All of that is now common. That is now all common. Uh, and so if we were all understanding this and teaching this and preaching this, we would walk that way. And it says, And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Now, this doesn't mean everybody sold everything and now everybody didn't have anything and they had this big pile of money because the church in Jerusalem was not a wealthy church. That's why when you read Paul's letters, when he goes around, he's taking a collection for the church in Jerusalem. But what he's saying here is that if, if someone had need, the church was saying, okay, we'll take care of that need. Even if we have to sell something, we will do that to help one another. The signs of the church as with anyone as they might have need. And then it says, and day by day, continually with one mind in the temple. See, the churches haven't been established yet. There's just one church and it's in Jerusalem. And just a side note, historically, it's going to be another 300 years before Christianity becomes an official religion, which means you can now buy property and erect churches. For 300 year, years, we, we, we were, we were house churches. We met in secret. We met in private. We met where we could because Christianity was, was first 300 years was persecuted. And if you don't believe that, uh, go to Rome and go to the Colosseum. You get the history on the Colosseum and you find out they were throwing Christians to the lions. You know, we were, we were used as sport. Uh, so, you know, it wasn't until Constantine in 325 declared Christianity uh, legal, and now we were able to buy and sell property, and now we were able to erect uh, churches without the fear of persecution. So day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. In other words, going along, breaking bread uh, in, in, in reconciliation with one another. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. So in other words, what's one of the markers of the church? Things that had kept us apart before those those little things, or we didn't know, or we didn't like this person, or we never met them. Now we 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 met them. Now we went to their house. Now we had meals with them. Now we gathered together. Why? Because we had all things in common. It was new. It was vital. It was it was fresh. Together with gladness and sincerity of heart, and they were praising God and having favor. With all people, and the Lord was adding to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Not a crowd of people following Looky Loose. He was adding to them people that were being saved. And how were they being saved? Because the early church was preaching the gospel. So that's Acts chapter 2. The first sermon to the church uh, the day the church begins, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, which is still here, still with us, still filling believers. And then this is the signs uh, that accompanied the church. So as we go through the book of Acts and then later on in the epistles, what we get is we get a diagram of what the church is supposed to be. You know, 
Uh, it's all right here. We have the manual for what the church is supposed to look like, what the church is supposed to do. And all we have to do is follow it. And that's why the epistles were written, because during the early days of the church, when they got off track a little bit, one of the apostles, and most notably uh, Paul, Peter wrote some, James wrote, uh, John wrote, he would now apply a correction to what the church was doing and saying, this is what we have to do. Because remember, when the church gets off track and starts doing other things and philosophy starts creeping in and other beliefs start start coming in, Paul makes a stand and he says, I just want to know one thing and one thing alone, and is that's Jesus Christ crucified. So he says, all this other stuff that you're bringing in, I don't want to hear about any of that. I just want to hear about the gospel. I just want to hear, are you preaching the gospel? Is this the message that you're giving out? Jesus Christ crucified, which means died on the cross for us, which means uh, buried, ascended, rose, giving the Holy Spirit. And he says, that's all I want to know. I don't want, I don't want to know about that other stuff. That other stuff is not important. What our, our plumb line is the gospel. Our plumb line is, is, is what the early church was about. And it's that ingathering of souls. And so it's interesting prophetically, if you look at it, it starts on the day of Pentecost, which is a harvest feast. The next feast that comes is the Feast of Trumpets. And what the Feast of Trumpets signals is the end of the harvest season. So at the end of the harvest season, around in uh, early September to mid-September, what would happen is the high priest would go to the temple, go to the corner of the temple mount, blow the shofar, and it would signal that the harvest season was over. And then what you would do, you would come into the temple, and you would now give God glory, praise, and honor for uh, uh, the harvest. And then what comes right after that is the Day of Atonement, which was the Day of Judgment. So when the harvest age is over, Jesus Christ returns, and he returns with what? Judgment. So you can just see in the feast how that's played out. So right now, prophetically, if we look at it, I don't think it's, it's, it's chance uh, that, that, that it's Pentecost. It was a harvest festival, the, the ingathering, because we're supposed to be about the ingathering of souls. I don't think it was chance that, that, that Jesus, the night he was betrayed, was Passover, our Passover lamb. You know, I don't think any of that is, is, is chance. Uh, um, God's got a plan and design. So I'll stop there. Any thoughts or questions on that? Because that's, that's the church. You know, and, and if you really think about it, you know, I encourage you to reread it, meditate on it, and look at it. And what, what was... What was God doing and how is God doing it? And, and what was the outcome and what should we be doing, you know, and, and stuff. That's why I said, you know, once I really got a handle on it, I said, you know, every sermon, you're, you're going to hear the gospel, regardless, regardless of where I'm in there, because the gospel is there. And we have to understand that because once we lose track of the gospel, then we're off track. That's why that's that's the most important important aspect of that so we good well okay next week we'll be in chapter three we're going to hear um, some signs and wonders uh we're going to get into the second sermon that peter preaches and then you know as we go along in acts we're going to see how churches were established in different 
um, parts of the world because it's again it's about the first 30 35 years of uh, the church history so we get a good handle on what was the first generation of the church like so it's a model for us uh, how to do it because sometimes you know we even say it we have to get back to basics this is what it is we have to get back to basics so let's pray Lord, again, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the power and the authority that is in your word, Lord. We thank you that you've given us this power, this dunamis power, Lord, uh, to preach the gospel, uh, to to assemble the church, to lead the church, to teach the church, uh, to make disciples, Lord, to structure the church, uh, to raise children, Lord, uh, and to teach people how to share the gospel, Lord, we, we, we just thank you, Lord, that we don't have to guess on how to do this, that you've given us uh, your word, you've given us the way and the path. So, Father, we thank you that you continue to keep our hearts attuned to the gospel, Lord, and may uh, First Baptist Church of Artesia always be a Bible-believing, gospel-teaching church, Lord. And may all our churches uh, always align themselves with the Word of God and give God praise and honor and glory and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, in all of this, we just give you praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church said, Amen. Praise God. If you have any questions, let me know. And I'll see you Sunday or next week. God bless.